BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. This is the show that respects your intelligence. We bring you the stories the mainstream media so often ignore and the perspectives and the ideas that big tech and the left so often seek to silence. Well, since President Trump left office, a number of his supporters have taken strong action to keep the movement that the president built alive. One of them is Russ Vogt. He served as the director of the Office of Management and Budget for President Trump. Vote previously worked for Heritage Action, the lobbying arm of the Heritage Foundation. And today, Russ Vogt is the president of the Center for American Restoration. It's a new think tank that he's launched. And in an op-ed in The Federalist, Mr. Vogt outlined the mission of the center, which is to restore an American consensus of a nation under God with unique interests worthy of defending that flow from its people, institutions, and history and where individuals' enjoyment of freedom is predicated on just laws and healthy communities. Ross, welcome to the show. We appreciate you, you joining us. Uh, and if you could just start by, by sharing with our viewers why you believe this mission is so important. Why is it so important for America that we continue to fight for these ideas? Thanks, Eric, for having me on. I think it's important because right now there's a, there is a definite effort uh, on, in many in the center-right movement to move beyond uh, President Trump's ideas and to to go back to where we were five or six years ago when the America First agenda did not really have legs to it. And and one of the things we are trying to do with the Center for American Restoration is continue to fight on these issues, particularly the cultural issues. And my belief is that we're a divided country because we've lost this consensus that you mentioned in our mission statement and that for us to have a long-term coalition, uh, we need to be able to, to bring people back to that consensus in this country so that we're not in every election cycle having a, a, a trench warfare of, of get out the vote, but that we remember about what it means to be America. Uh, so that's what we're going to be working on, and uh, we're, we're really excited to continue the fight on these areas and to flesh them out, um, to be able to use the time that we have uh, now uh, President Trump is no longer uh, in office. Uh, I'm no longer in office. And now it gives us some time to think through the implications of these ideas, develop them into detailed policy proposals, and then think through how we would implement them in the future. Yeah, Russ, you worked as the director of the Office of Management and Budget. I'll, I'll, many of our viewers know, uh, but, but some might not, that the Office of Management and Budget, one of the most powerful offices underneath the president of the United States, because you really oversee all of government. Uh, talk, if you would, about why it's so important from your perspective, given your experience having worked at a think tank previously, given your experience having worked directly for the president of the United States, why do we need to have these intellectual underpinnings of these ideas so clearly articulated and, and fought for? 
fundamentally, if you have an idea that you want to turn into law, it needs a bill. And those bills need to have specificity, otherwise the administrative state that has, has arisen gets to write the language however they want to. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. that's what we see over the last several decades, is that Congress delegates all of its powers to, to bureaucracies. And bureaucracies get incredibly in the weeds, technical, to be able to flesh this out. And often, that's where, that's where the fight is. And mm -hmm. our belief, as someone who's actually had to implement these ideas, is that we need to do everything from propose to think through implementation so that it never gets to that situation where something that you have been working on for many years uh, is, is, is ruined uh, within the bowels of, of agencies or some argument comes up that you can't do what you want to do. So OMB was where we did a lot of this. Uh, it was every regulation that went through the Office of Management and Budget. It was all of government execution for a president's agenda. And so it gave us a bird's eye view to, to see this and to be able to plan accordingly. Yeah, and, and again, uh, we've got a lot of really sharp viewers. Uh, many of them recognize that what often happens is that Congress will pass a law, but in that law they will delegate a lot of the rulemaking authority to the bureaucracy of a particular cabinet department. And so then you actually have the real down and dirty implementation where the rubber meets the road is actually being done not by people's elected representatives, but often by folks who are in, uh, in, the, in the bureaucracy. Russ, if you could reflect a little bit on who you look to as the top best, you know, two, three, four, five, both historical and present day thinkers who you'll be drawing from as you seek to kind of articulate this, uh, this vision. Yeah, I think there's a, a, a wide gamut of individuals, uh, everyone from Russell Kirk and Whitaker Chambers and uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn on the, on the faith and the traditional order mm -hmm. side. Uh, modern day, it's, it's, it's Donald Trump and Josh Hawley. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done in this space. And, and, and I think in between those, 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 that spectrum, is one of the reasons why we have our work cut out for us is to make sure that uh, we are providing an intellectual foundation, policy durability, to be able to provide a, a movement for bringing elites back into this space uh, and also uh, providing uh, legitimate policy proposals for, for champions in, in this space. Sure. And for our viewers who, who aren't familiar, Russ, give them a sense for how a think tank works. You obviously uh, have just started the mission. We understand you're in, in the early days. But how a think tank works and how a think tank can actually influence policy in the course of the country. Yeah, it's an opportunity to have people uh, of, who are dedicated to the cause to wake up in the morning and think about a particular issue and then think about what that reform would be, as opposed to uh, many of us who in different times in our life would, would have to think it through on our, on our off hours. And that gives you an opportunity to apply all of your expertise and also build coalitions to be able to, to think these things through. And, and you know, I know there's a view sometimes right now that we don't need any more think tanks, and I get the, the, the essence of that complaint. But I also believe there are some big issues that we need to think through. Let me just give you an example, Eric. When the president was in office, um, it took him many years to have a plan to be able to get out of Afghanistan because there wasn't something on the shelf that was ready to go. 
And as a result, he had to reply, re rely on a bureaucracy that didn't support his policy objective. And so in that particular interest, it took many, many years be before we were ready to go. And I think that's the kind of thing that we have the opportunity now to think through every aspect of the politics, the process, the policy to bring something together and then give it almost ready-made off the shelf to legislators and, and, and future uh, uh, executive branch officials to be able to move in, in the direction that, that we're headed. And I think, can think of other examples in other spaces uh, and where we need similar, similar work to be done. Yeah, Russ, it's a great point, and it's something that the left has, has done actually for decades, is that they will often have think tanks where when they are out of power, they will be building out, often outlining, detailing very specific policy proposals. They'll also have people who are ready to come into the next administration. So as you said, uh, when the Democrats come into power, they're kind of coming with, you know, ready-made uh, ready plans. And so it sounds like what you are doing with the, with the Center for American Restoration is to kind of take this intellectual underpinnings of the MAGA movement. The idea is to then build on these ideas so that when President Trump or folks who want to put America first step back into office, they have that kind of, that kind of support at hand. Um, one of the things that you outlined in your Federalist op-ed, Russ, was that you, you wanted to really focus on a couple of key issues. You mentioned strategically for God, for country, for community. If you could briefly just talk about some of how you see, uh, you know, philosophically the approach of, of the center. Sure, and you'd early mentioned our, our mission statement, but I think the for God, the for country, the for community encapsulate a number of the correctives that we're trying to bring to the debate. One, one is that in the public square, I think we've lost the ability in the center-right movement and certainly the secular public square to argue from a position of a Judeo-Christian background. And, and, and certainly we live in a pluralist age and, and no one would, would argue that we should change that. But if you can't argue from where your position is, you don't have the firm foundation under your feet to be persuasive and bring people to your side and make good arguments. Number two, I think there's a, a corrective in the sense of um, we have a, a unique country and we have American interests and in that all of our decisions from a public policy standpoint need to be thought through from the standpoint of our country's interest. And that applies to, you know, I just put out a tweet yesterday about President's, uh, tr uh, President Biden's uh, pause of the troop, withdra troop withdrawal. Uh, that's just one recent example of, are we thinking about it from the standpoint of our American interests or not? And then finally, uh, the emphasis on community. Uh, I think we have uh, loved freedom and, the, and free markets, and, and, and I will never argue against those, those two things. I think we also need to remember that our freedoms come within the context of healthy communities and just laws, right. and that without those things, we can also uh, move towards an unhealthy license and autonomy that also helps us lose public policy debates and an inconsistency in the sense that you, you've lost the ability to be happy uh, in, your, in yes. your autonomy. And so that's one of the reasons that we have uh, emphasized those three correctives so as Russ, part of the center. Just, just 10 seconds left. For folks who want to learn more about the Center for American Restoration, very quickly, where can they head to? We'd love if you joined at AmericanRestorationCenter.com. 
Beautiful. Well, Russ, thank you very much. We, we wish you uh, good luck on that enterprise and look forward to seeing you again. Well, folks, stay right with us here on Actionable Intelligence. We'll be back in just a minute. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Well, welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. He's been on the show before, and you guys have enjoyed him. It is Jamie Allman. He is the host of Radio Free Allman, and he joins us from California, where he's been out on the ground as part of the Recall Gavin Newsom rallies. Jamie, great to see you. Yeah, in the, in the formerly great state of California, I got to tell you, by yeah. how the mighty has fallen. I mean, when you look at California as the state that gave us you know, the gold rush and the westward home mentality and Ronald Reagan and the Howard Jarvis tax revolt and everything else. It come a long way, baby, to tyranny. And so that's what everybody in California is trying to stop. And this is actually very important, Eric, because this has ramifications for the tyrants all over the country. So mm. if Gavin Newsom falls, so do the other dominoes out there who are keeping everybody inside and businesses closed, et cetera, even though he's now starting to open them up again. It's clearly too late. Here in San Diego, the place is a ghost town. They're using the convention center to house uh, homeless people. It's unbelievable the damage that's been caused. People unemployed, uh, businesses crushed, and I'm not quite sure some of them can even recover. So that's why there's this urgency here. Yeah, and look, one of the things that we're hearing from viewers uh, around the country, but especially from people in California, is this really growing anger because not only has Gavin Newsom demonstrated that he doesn't even personally follow the, his own rules that he lays out, he's crushed small businesses across the state of California, uh, told people that they have to wear masks, and yet goes out freely by himself, hangs out with lobbyists and insiders, eating at expensive restaurants with other political insiders, while at the same time, you know, crushing the jobs uh, of thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of Californians. Uh, Jamie, our understanding is that the people who are working to recall Gavin Newsom, that they have to reach 1.5 million signatures, that they've already got, my understanding is, about 1.3 million signatures, and it sounds like at least 85% of those are already verified as being solid signatures. Do I have that right? What's the latest? You do, and they're about 3,000 away, and they have until about March 7th to do it, and it should be pretty easy, especially with this bus tour that's going throughout uh, the entire state, winding up, I believe, in Sacramento. And so it's gonna be pretty easy to get 3,000 right now. It was, it was actually amazingly easy to get the 1.5 million or 1.3 million, because uh, th this is an incredible, how Gavin Newsom, I mean, how in this country is it possible that in a country so divided politically and everything else, that you actually mm. can have a guy who can coalesce all different kinds of groups? I'm talking about the left, uh, the right, black, white, Democrat, Republican, libertarian, you name it, who all are affected by a shutdown. Everybody goes to church, everybody goes to a restaurant, everybody wants to go out. 
People want to own businesses. People want to cater to businesses. People want to go to school, all that kind of stuff. So he's managed to actually, in a divided nation like this, uh, bring so many people together in one point of, of misery and anger and action. So it's going to happen. I mean, I actually talked to a few legal experts who say this actually really could happen. And if it does, it's got so many ramifications for the rest of the country, which is why I'm out here from St. Louis. Even I'm not just out here for the 66 degree weather and the sunshine, but I will tell you that people say, oh, I'm jealous you're in San Diego in California. The thing is, it's so beautiful here, but when it's empty and there's yeah. no one around, I'm telling you, there's no one around, it's not so beautiful after all. That's what Californians are fighting for, and hopefully we're fighting for across the country. Well, and look, the good news is it's part of America's DNA is that people are willing to stand up against tyranny. And as you mentioned, you know, these irrational policies, these policies which politicians have put out and where they've said, these are the rules for thee, but not for me. Have you started to unite people? You know, Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals, many of whom are coming together saying that, that tyranny is just not right. And of course, that is what we're seeing. Uh, from Gavin Newsom. You know, one of the things that we've covered on this show, Jamie, and we keep hearing is that, you know, what's really driving people, you know, to tremendous frustration, and I think many of them would say anger, is that the policies also seem completely irrational. They keep saying that they are rooted in the science, but when you actually are willing to do the work of looking at the numbers, it's very clear that a state like Florida, which has been relatively open, is actually doing much better on most health measures relative to coronavirus than a state like California. And of course, Florida has a more elderly population. What are you hearing from people in California about how irrational and really unscientific Newsom's approach has been? Well, if you take an example of outdoor dining, for instance, and if you go to a yeah. restaurant San Diego, for instance, where you're, where you're seeing people all, you know, uh, intense, okay? So everybody's trying to figure out, okay, so how is it better to be dining in a, two feet away from somebody in a tent, right, with eaters and everything else going, as opposed to the rest of you're organically kind of separated and everything else. So uh, that's the kind of confusion. People don't understand why a drinking fountain is closed off. Why did you turn off the fountain at the Civic Center? Why is the fountain off? So these guys, really what happened and what has happened throughout the country is that a lack of knowledge actually has become knowledge. So the fact that somebody doesn't know anything means that they actually know everything. So they shut everything down. Since, since they don't know anything, they know enough to shut everything down. It's been crazy. I know it sounds, but everybody is so confused over all the arbitrary closures, this kind of thing. And then people go to the beach and then they have to wear masks at the beach. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Side at the beat, you gotta be crazy. So really, if, honestly, from Dr. Fauci on down, these people really actually don't really know much about this virus or how it behaves. So they just kind of, we don't know why it's not nine feet and it's six feet. We don't know why it's not three feet and it's six feet. We don't know why, you know, a temperature check, the temperature check has already proven not to work. So nobody really understands what's going on. Nobody knows why a hot tub at a hotel is closed, but the pool is open. I, I, you know, it just is it's crazy. So yes, it's confusing to people, but it's gotten to the point now where people are actually angry about it because it's starting to kill off their economies and they can't go to church, they can't go to school and they 
can't go to a restaurant. And, and their restaurants that they worked on for 25 years are now closed by a guy who hasn't created a thing in his entire life. Amazing. Yeah, and I think, I think one of the things that is driving people nuts, you made, you made these points, you know, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, you can go back. The founding fathers had a lot of philosophical differences between them. But one thing that they all agreed on, and I see you're wearing the 1776 shirt, one thing they all agreed on was that a republic could only be maintained if you actually had informed citizens who were willing to ask tough questions. And the fact is, just from a common sense perspective, people are walking around and they're asking the exact same questions all over the country. How does this make sense that it's okay to eat in a tent outside, but you can't eat in a restaurant inside? How does it make sense that you're allowed to have six people at a table, but you can't have seven? How does it make sense that a 23-month-old child is allowed to sit on a plane without a mask? But you can't be, if the kid's 24 months, the kid has to have a mask. It just, the irrationality of it and the, the fact that the, the left, these people who want to say that they know better than you, that they're going to tell you and you just have to shut up and listen is what's driven so many people so to, to, to a point where finally they are taking action. And it sounds like it may well cost Gavin Newsom. Uh, what's your sense, uh, Jamie, also... I want to, want to switch, switch gears uh, just quickly. We've got the trial of President Trump coming up after Nancy Pelosi's drive-by impeachment, where she did this in eight hours without any evidence. We've already seen a lot of evidence coming out, which just proves, again, just like the Russia collusion hoax, this is all uh, based on, on lies and, and accusations. Uh, what are you hearing from folks about, about this, you know, uh, this impeachment? Well, I will tell you, a great example would be what's going on in California right now and what's going on with people's everyday lives. What's going on in Washington, D.C., as usual, uh, doesn't affect them nearly as much as what a right. governor does right. or a city school board does or a city council does. And so to tell you the truth, there are people who don't even they don't they don't even care what's going on out there right now in D.C., because they're so singularly focused on building up their own economies again and, and opening mm -hmm. their business and, and just living their daily lives again, sending their kids back to school again. I don't think the guys in D.C. have any idea how little people care about this. Uh, and if they do care about it, they know it's a waste of time. It's wrong. It's, uh, it's hunting some guy down for no reason, really for the sole purpose of shutting the 74 million people up who voted for him. So... Uh, people understand what that's going on, and, and that it's a gratuitous swipe as it is. And so if they do care at all, that's what they're saying. But I will mm -hmm. tell you that the dog and pony show in D.C. is for politicians only. And people have had it. And that's why, yeah. you know, if you remember back in the 70s, Howard Jarvis and his big property tax revolt took place here in California. So revolts have happened here before, and it looks like they're going to happen again. And the people in D.C., keep playing their games, but right here, the people of California and hopefully the people across the country are taking matters into their own hands in a positive way, a legal way of fighting back. And keep in mind too, recall isn't available to, for instance, the people in New Jersey. They can't recall right. their government. So right. Uh, right. they're taking advantage of everything they can legally here in California and not worrying about that impeachment stuff. 
Jamie, just, just 15 seconds left. Uh, remind our viewers, please, where they can catch Radio Free Almond and how they can follow you on social media. I am on Radio Free Almond every morning uh, when I'm actually in town uh, on, on Facebook. I'm on YouTube as well, the Radio Free Almond page there. I have an online television show called TheAlmondReport.com, uh, which is where sometimes great uh, fights will appear, those kinds of things. So uh, you can check me mostly, though, at Radio Free on, well, uh, folks, on YouTube. Check them out. Stay there and enjoy some Radio Free Allman. It is always insightful. We appreciate Jamie joining us from California. Stay right with us. We're going to be back with more actionable intelligence in just a minute. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Well, welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. As you know, on this show, we love to bring you people who've got interesting perspectives and real-life frontline experience. He's been on the show before. We are very happy to welcome back Brandon Webb. He's a Navy SEAL. He is a best-selling author, and he's the founder of SoftRep, a website that I frequently visit for great stories on the U.S. military and American foreign policy. He's the, also the author of a new book called Steel Fear. Brandon, welcome. How are you today? Good, Eric. Thanks for having me. You bet. Hey, first, uh, share with our viewers, many of whom have read your, your previous books. Uh, tell them a little bit about Steel Fear, please. So before I was a Navy SEAL, I was a SAR swimmer on um, the Abraham Lincoln aircraft carrier. It's a 6,000-person carrier. We had a sexual predator on the ship, and he was never caught. He had um, molested, I think, six women. So years later, I'm thinking, I want to write my first novel. And I, I imagine, what if this guy was a serial killer? Because as you know, uh, in that type of environment, the, the Navy's not equipped to deal with the complex crime like that. So I had this concept for Steel Fear. It's kind of a Hannibal Lecter-like character on this aircraft carrier, but nobody knows who done it. So there's like four characters you think that it could be them, even the hero who has memory loss. Uh, suspects himself. So that book comes out in July. So appreciate any any pre-orders. We just optioned it, um, and it's going to be made into a series uh, on Peacock, which is um, yeah Universal's new streaming service. So excited about it. it it's it's and it's going to be a series. Like we sold a, a, a two book deal with with Random House. So really excited about it. Very cool, and and, and congratulations, Brandon. Uh, I want to I want to turn now to some of the big stories that you guys have out at SoftRep. Uh, one of those is that the Israeli military is preparing to attack Iranian nuclear facilities. Uh, break that down for our viewers, if you would. I mean, as as simply put as as possible, I, one of the things I think Trump was right to do was pull us out of this this deal with Iran, where we're essentially paying them to not make nukes when they're still making like developing their nuclear capability uh, behind our backs. Like we've, we know now that through intelligence that Iran is like double dealing, right? And so uh, it, with Biden trying to put us back into that deal, the Israelis, you know, which Iran is on their front doorstep, they're very concerned mm -hmm. with this mm -hmm. radical uh, ideological regime 
that would have no problem dropping a nuke on Los Angeles, New York, um, in, in the name of Allah, right? So um, Israel is very, very concerned with, with Iran. They're an active, very active player in the region. They've been yeah, very active in the, the civil war in Syria. So uh, definitely is Israeli, I think that's, it's also a signal is Israel is sending to the rest of the world. Like we're not just gonna stand by and, and take this. Um, and I see that that's probably a you know a, a strong signal to the Biden administration as well. Yeah, and Israel has in the past made clear, uh, not just through words but also through action, that they are willing to strike at facilities which they believe are harboring weapons of mass destruction, including uh, nuclear facilities. Most recently in Syria, I think it was in 2007. So. This is a serious thing. The Israelis have done it before, and it sounds like they're, they're absolutely preparing to, to do it again. You also have an article at, at SoftRep out about like, a, Israel put, preparing for a potential wider conflict with Iran, perhaps even an all-out war. What do we know? I mean, I, I think the, the idea of war with Iran is very real. Like when you look at just kind of what's happening in the world geopolitically, um, I, I, you know, we're just saying like the, the possibility of, of this happening is is very real. So um, I, I think it's one of the things you just we're just going to have to pay attention to. But you know, how does this affect U.S. the the U.S. troops? As you know, we've been at war now 20 years, uh, various administrations, a little bit of a of schizophrenia with the American foreign policy. We saw that uh, with. With Libya, where we lost uh, a, a common friend, Glenn Doherty, who was a SEAL yeah. working for the CIA. Um, Benghazi was a mess, right? And Hillary Clinton yeah. um, had. A, I don't even want to get down that rabbit hole. The other, the cover up on on what happened there, but I think what Benghazi showed is that we really don't have a clear foreign policy strategy, at least under that administration. I think one of the things I really admired about Trump was that he was doing a lot to kind of shape this up, saying, guys time out, we need to like really focus on what we're doing here in the world and creating all these problems uh, and and let's take care of the troops, right? The, the American, especially the special operations community has been carrying this massive load on their shoulders for 20 years and now we're starting to see the toll it's taking on the families, the suicide rates. Um, I watched an excellent documentary about the Michael Phelps um, uh, talking about how gold medalists were struggling with depression, and, and I think we're seeing this in in the military now, where you're you have this identity, you transition into the civilian environment, and and now what? You've kind of lost that purpose, and and there's a lot of uh, issues that are facing the troops, and it's it's time for us to to take care of these folks. Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and coming back to, to Iran, it was very clear that, that President Trump was willing to take a much harder line. He uh, was willing to kill Qasem Soleimani, right, one of the major Iranian commanders. Uh, you and I, Brandon, both lost friends in Iraq, as many of our viewers know. Um, many of the, the IEDs and the vehicle-borne improvised explosive devices that killed our friends were actually supplied by Iran. Iran is the number one state sponsor of terrorism in the world. Uh, the Biden administration is clearly taking a softer line against Iran, and that's why you know, the, the Israeli Defense Forces have now um, asked for a major increase in their budget. It sounds like they are looking to 
to build the, the bombs, missiles, armaments, the stockpile that they would need for a protracted possible war with Iran. Obviously, we hope that that doesn't happen, uh, but I think that the Biden administration's weakness uh, in these first few signals um, around Iran certainly makes for, for a more dangerous, uh, more dangerous world. Speaking of Biden administration moves, uh, one of the things that you guys also have up at SoftRap is that you break down that the Biden administration has ordered a halt to troop withdrawals from Germany. A lot of our viewers will remember that President Trump brought troops home, not just from Afghanistan, but he was also in the process of bringing them home from Germany, re relocating some of the troops in Germany to other places in Europe. What do we, what, what do we know, Brandon? I mean, in, in, from the 40,000-foot viewpoint, again, I, I would have to agree with, with President Trump's decision you know, of kind of like high level, we've got to take care of the, the, the U.S. defense force. We're spreading ourselves too thin. 20 years of, of war. What do we have to show for Afghanistan? No clear answers on why we were still in Afghanistan after 2003. Really no strategic reason at all. Um, and so it, it's a little bit upsetting to see the Biden administration, like, playing politics with the defense forces, when in reality, I think it's a very good move. You know, this is like, I think Biden kind of peacocking a bit and saying, oh, we're going to stop everything that Trump was doing. When, in, when it comes to the, the Department of Defense, I think this is a good move. It's, it's time to kind of consolidate, take care of the troops. We have a ton of troop fatigue from 20 years of war. We have major issues. Uh, on the bright side, the American um, the American military is one of the sharpest, well-funded uh, fighting forces the world's ever seen. But you cannot do, uh, you cannot keep up this deployment pace. As you and I know, we've had friends that have had 10, 15 combat deployments. That's impossible pace to keep up. So um, I, I do think, you know, downsizing that presence in Europe is is a good idea, as well as pulling troops out of other areas where. We really have no reason to be there anymore, and Afghanistan would be probably the, the better one. Now, Brandon, one of the one of the great things about Soft Rep is that you guys not only have insightful and informative stories about American foreign policy in the U.S. military, you've also got some inspiring and cool stories. Uh, one of them that you have up is called the Giant Killer, a fascinating look at the smallest Green Beret in history. I didn't know this story. Tell, tell our viewers about it, please, just in the last minute or so we've got going. I mean, this is a, a story of, you know, and I think it's true grit, right? That, that's one of the things I admire and, and I think would agree with some of, the, some of the folks that we train with in the SEAL teams. You look at these guys and if you put them in a, in a lineup, nobody would pick out some of the, some of the guys that graduate SEAL training they, because they're you know, five foot five and, and, and a 120 pounds soaking wet. Um, in this case, this was a guy that got our age waiver. He's like under five feet, I think four foot nine, like incredibly small, got this age waiver and just forced himself into the special operations world out of sheer willpower. And I, I just love the story from the true grit perspective. Um, I mean, this guy was a tiny little guy and ended up going on to uh, serve in the Central Intelligence Agency in South America and, and did some amazing things. But it just just another story of like an unsung uh, American hero. And, and we're really trying to focus on on these stories and, and celebrating the, the history of the special operations community. 
Very cool. And before we go, Brandon, quickly, uh, remind our viewers where they can get that story and where they can also follow you on social media. Sure. So that's, that story is on softrep.com, just S-O-F as in Frank, uh, R-E-P.com. And I'm on uh, all platforms uh, at Brandon T. Webb. Awesome. Well, Brandon, congratulations again on the new book, Steel Fear. I know that folks will be out uh, and will be checking it out. Well, stay right with us because before we go, we're going to have Sophie Mann back to break down some of the biggest stories at justthenews.com. We'll be back in just a minute with more from Actionable Intelligence. Stay right with us. Well, welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. As you know, we've got this fantastic team at justthenews.com who help us to break down some of the biggest stories at justthenews.com every day. And now Sophie Mann is joining us to talk through some of the stories. Sophie, thanks for joining us tonight. So Sophie, first, uh, there's a big story. Ted Cruz has put a halt on the nomination of President Biden's nominee for Commerce Secretary, nominee... Gina Raimondo. Tell us what's happening there. That's correct. So um, basically what's going on right now is that Gina Raimondo has passed out of the initial committee um, vote with a fairly bipartisan vote, 21 members of the initial committee that she needed to pass out of uh, to get to the full Senate vote voted in the affirmative. It seems like she will be able to garner real bipartisan support, except that Ted Cruz and um, several of his fellow sort of Freedom Caucus alum um, senators are concerned about one answer that she gave when asked about whether or not she would keep the Chinese giant telecommunications company Huawei on a national security entity list run by the U.S. government that basically keeps an eye on the company, limits the amount of trade we can do with them in some capacities, and basically is just watching out for the best interests of the United States and its people in terms of what Huawei is up to with its 5G network interactions and um, things of that accord. We know that this has become a big issue, uh, especially in the last months of the Trump administration with uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo doing a tour of Europe with our European allies to really mm-hmm. warn them about Huawei um, and say to, you know, just be cautious of what's going on because we don't fully understand each and every connection that the conglomerate has with the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and, you know, there have been issues of security before. So what Ted Cruz needs to hear from um, the Commerce Secretary nominee is that she is going to commit to keeping Huawei on the entity list. Uh, she may very well do just that. And this is sort of a preliminary examination and not, you know, a full-fledged statement that he's going to oppose her nomination. But he has, for the moment, put a pause on it and doesn't wish to move forward with a full Senate vote until um, they sort of get to the bottom of of her affirmative stance on the issue. Yeah, because when she was questioned about it in the committee, she said that she would examine it, that she would look at it, that she would review the policy, but she would not make that commitment. And it sounds like that's obviously what Senator Cruz is is looking for. Um, now, another, another story we've got up at, at justthenews.com is that the left is aiming to rein in what they call media diversity, meaning that they don't want as many conservative media outlets reaching as many Americans. It says, in the name of curbing extremism, radicalization, uh, and radicalization, they're mulling economic pressure uh, 
in order to to harm conservative media outlets. What do we know? Yeah, well, so it's this pretty wild thing. We've heard it from a couple of different sources at this point, sources meaning Congress, the White House, and CNN broadcast hosts. Mm -hmm. So coming out of AOC, uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, earlier this week, she had suggested creating a congressional committee on truth, um, which is sort of an interesting name, but mostly she wants to hone in on... Um, tamping down the spread of disinformation around the country. The problem obviously being that at this very polarized moment, the left and the right, especially those at opposite ends of those spectrums, have very different ideas of what truth and misinformation actually mean. From the White House, we know that the Biden administration is considering appointing something that they're calling a reality czar to help combat the spread of misinformation. Again, something we've just seen be not quite a straightforward line of what misinformation actually is with you know, big tech reining in on things that some people call misinformation, other people call dissenting opinions. And then, of course, earlier this week, uh, Brian Stelter, CNN's um, host of Reliable Sources, said that he thinks that Fox News should be uh, stifled a little bit in its in its significant uh, outreach. You know, it goes to millions and millions of American homes every night. It is a lot of people's uh, um, channel of choice. And he says that because of the amount of lies that they've told, you know, during this election cycle and really for the past any number of years, if this is coming from Brian Stelter, um, they should be tamped down and muted and not be able to go out to as many people because in his estimation, what they are saying is not correct. So really, this is, you know, the left branding the truth as something that they own, which we, of course, know they don't. And certainly, there is, you know, work to be done in terms of coming to an under a somewhat bipartisan understanding of how to solve these issues that we've seen of misinformation spreading online and radical groups, you know, being yeah. platformed and deplatformed. But um, it seems unclear that it coming out of the the real uh, most radical voices on the left is the way to do that. Well, it's certainly Orwellian, Orwellian the idea that we would have a reality czar. Well. Uh, earlier this week, uh, one of our Real America's Voice correspondents, Anna Perez, uh, took to the airwaves. We want to play her monologue now. It's no secret that former President Trump had one of the worst experiences with the mainstream media in all of American presidential history. Okay, more like the worst. But while the media thrived on attacking Trump, he continued to give them all the rope they needed to hang their reputations in the public square. In Jim's defense, I've traveled with him and watched him. He's a diligent reporter who busts. Well, his I'm not a big fan of, of yours either. So I yeah, understand. To be honest, so let, me, so let me ask you a question, if I can. You repeatedly you said are, you are the best, Mr. President. You repeatedly over the course okay, of the just sit down, please. Well, when you when you report fake news, no, when you report fake news, which CNN does a lot, you are the enemy of the people. The media insisted time and time again, they're just doing their jobs as truth-seeking journalists, holding the president accountable. So stunning, so brave. While America was enjoying a three-day weekend yesterday, the president held a news conference most deserving of a fact check. It's not a personal thing against Trump, they said. They do to anyone. He just lies so much, right? Well, in case you didn't already reject that theory, based on the fact that literally every other president before him, Republican or Democrat, was treated with way more respect by the media than Trump, in comes the Biden administration. In just the first two weeks with a new Democrat president, CNN came out with a chyron that read, 
Press Secretary Saki promises to share accurate info. How refreshing. Hmm, weird. What happened to all of those watchdog journalists? You know, the ones that came out with Chirons in 2019 saying, Biden to eviscerate Trump in Iowa speech today. By the way, no, he didn't exactly eviscerate Trump. But perhaps worst of all, worst of all, the media had a field day with Trump when the coronavirus broke out. They gleefully watched as the economy fell apart due to the incompetence of far-left governors. And they couldn't wait to inaccurately blame it all on President Trump. I've been telling you, just about every single day since March, to make your president take this virus seriously, to stop lying to the American people, to stop being Pollyannish to the American people, to stop making promises that obviously were never going to be fulfilled, to stop saying we're going to be able to open by Easter, we're going to be able to open by Memorial Day. Good Lord, the 4th of July is come and gone. And it's only getting worse. And it's only getting worse. Because you didn't hold your president to account. But then how did the media react to the Biden administration? Oh, that's right. They gave him all the credit for swooping in and saving the day with his prized coronavirus plan. Look, since the president and vice president were sworn in, they went immediately to work. You had an eight-minute segment opening um, that actively demonstrates that. Uh, look, we, the president and the vice president absolutely believe that Americans in this country need relief right now. That is why you saw in advance of being sworn in, the president lay out the American Rescue Plan. This is, this is a plan to, to provide relief to Americans across the country. Folks are standing in food lines right now, Allie. People are unable to pay their rent and their mortgages. We also, though, believe that America needs recovery, which is why in a few weeks' time, the president will lay out his recovery plan for the American people. So there's lots to do, as you said. And we believe, uh, the administration believes, that we have to urgently act right now to confront all of these converging crises. Which we later found out was really not a plan at all. Because there's nothing we can do to change the trajectory of the pandemic. Hmm, shocker. Yeah, but never mind the fact that it was actually President Trump who first advocated for an actual plan with $2,000 stimulus checks. Look, we already know these people aren't real journalists. I mean, none of them are. The sad part is they don't even pretend to be anymore because they know they don't have to. They're elitists and have no real contact with the world outside of the Washington, D.C. area. And they serve a similar demographic. I mean, who really takes CNN seriously anymore? Just look at how many times they've reported incorrect polls. Look, no matter how much the media tells us it wasn't, with Trump, it was always personal. They hated him because he knocked them right off their pedestals any time their self-importance got in the way. The irony is that for four years, it was President Trump who served as watchdog for the American people, not the media. But now the man they helped elect is president, and they won't challenge him anytime soon. The Washington Post says, democracy dies in darkness. No, democracy dies with fawning coverage 
and lack of curiosity. Well, that was Anna Perez, Real America's Voice correspondent, and I can guarantee you that here at Real America's Voice, we are going to continue to follow the stories that matter to you. And remember uh, to follow us on social media and to let your friends know that they can go out to justthenews.com for the latest and best stories. That's it for the week. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll see you on Monday.